Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up in today, coming up on today's show, science has solved a murder. The 1984 murder of Christine Jessup. Dueling town halls instead of a debate. Who won? Who lost? Does anyone care anymore? And York Region slips back into a modified stage two after this weekend. All the details coming up on the Scott Thompson Podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I understand my sister did this yesterday because I forgot due to my pressing COVID-19 schedule. At least I'm in class. She's always trying to steal my thunder. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. You did that one from under the covers. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as he has done for 31 weeks. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots to talk about today. Uh, you can do so with the commentary uh, waiting for you at 900CHML.com, Facebook and Twitter as well. You can send me a note uh, via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots to talk about, but I want to get right to uh, Catherine McDonald, a crime specialist with Global News. Uh, just an incredible story that broke yesterday uh, when a killer was identified in the 1984 murder of Christine Jessup. Uh, my goodness, a cold case all of these years, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, a killer has been found. And uh, here's what uh, Kenny Jessup, uh, the brother of, of Christine Jessup, had to say. From day one, truly believed it was someone that knew our family, knew my dad was in jail and knew that we were going to visit him that day, and that came down to four people. That's why the bike was thrown down in the garage. That's why she ran in to show her dad the brand-new recorder she'd just gotten. He, he used that line. I've said that from day one. All right, let's bring in Catherine McDonald, crime specialist, Global News. She is in Queensville and uh, is with us now. Catherine, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. What is the mood like in Queensville today? You know, it's like it's kind of like I can close my eyes and feel like it, it felt in 1984. This convenience store at the crossroads on, on Main Street, Queensville, um, it hasn't changed in 36 years. And, and the owner, the new owner came up, out and he said, okay, this is, I don't want my building on the news. He said, it's all over. Uh, people have a sense of, like, relief. Uh, they're happy. I'm, I, I'm talking to people who have... Uh, lived and worked in this area. One woman tells me she remembers back then in 1984, her parents went out and searched through the fields. She was 24, and she said it. She remembers hearing it on the radio. And I said, what was it like when you talked to your mother last night? And she said, my mom's now 84, and she's so happy. Uh, I spoke to a mechanic who works in the tractor store. He knew Guy Palmer, and he said he used to come in. And he said it's like the end of an era for this town because people have always wondered, who did this? And, and the question of why is something that is still haunting people here. And it's something we may never know. Um, and the other question is, who is Calvin Hoover? And we're trying to find that out uh, here at the tractor shop. You know, one, one young man who wasn't even alive, he said, I keep thinking some old farmer is going to come in and tell me a story about this man. Uh, because certainly we know there are people here who would have known him. Uh, but, yeah, there's a sense of relief, of happiness for the family of, of Christine and for the poor Key Palmer, for sure. 
Well, we'll certainly get into the science of this a bit later. Uh, that being said, this sort of came out of the blue. Did anybody see this coming? How did how did this come to to a head now? So I actually know uh, the investigator who's been uh, really pushing this case forward. Uh, it's a man by the name of Detective Sergeant Stacy Gallant. He actually retired from the Toronto Police in in the new year after a long career. I, I profiled him on Global News because I'd known him over the years. And he was in charge of the cold case unit, which was part of the homicide squad. And he told me, he called me yesterday, he wrote me, he said, guess what? Uh, I'm so thrilled. He's no longer with the Toronto Police, just retired. But he's thrilled because one of the last things he did in the last few years while he was in cold case was he was pushing for them to take this DNA and send it off to one of these genealogical labs where they test the DNA and they try and do the family lineage. But it's expensive. It's not done in Canada. We know it was successful in the Green River murder, uh, you know, solving this this case. Um, and so he, he had to put a proposal together, he tells me. He said, I had to put it on paper. It's a lot of money. It's expensive. We'd never done it before. And he, this was, he had his own agenda. He really got to know the family. And, uh, you know, it was sitting there amongst the boxes of cold cases. And it was something that he said was really important to him, knowing that there was this new sort of, you know, DNA tracking technology out there, but it's expensive. And off he went, he retired. And he said, I had sent the, sent out the DNA, the Center for Forensic Science uh, had a sample from the underwear, uh, and they sent it off to this lab, and, and it took them many months. And that's how it was solved, which is incredible. It is an incredible story. How is the family feeling? What is their reaction? We heard a clip from the brother. Uh, how are they feeling? I mean, from what I've seen, and I haven't personally spoken to them, they're, they're absolutely, you know, so so happy and relieved to finally have answers that they've been waiting for. And you know, Janet Jessup is not, is not a young woman. She could have gone to her grave never knowing what happened to her daughter. Uh, as you know, we are speaking with Kenny today uh, for television. He did speak to us yesterday, and, and he thinks it all makes sense that this is somebody who knew the family, who knew that they were going away that day, that, that Christine was going to be alone. And, I mean, just being in this town, as I said, this convenience store where she went to get some bubble gum, and that was the last time she was mm. seen. It, it hasn't changed. It's the same as it was in 1984, 36 years ago. And this town feels very unchanged. And there are people here who have been here for those that many, many years, like this mechanic who's been 40 years in the same tractor uh, garage, you know, fixing uh, tractors and speaking with farmers. And so, yeah, this is this town was on the map for the wrong reasons. And people are relieved and they want to put it behind them. And they and they're uh- happy it's over. Uh, Guy Paul Moran, of, of course, uh, charged in this crime, later exonerated through DNA evidence. Uh, you have to wonder how he is feeling today in all of this. I think we heard from, we, we played those archival clips. He, he always believed that DNA would find the killer, the same way it cleared his name. So I think, obviously, I, listening to his lawyer, James Lockyer, uh, there's, he's tremendously relieved that this is finally over. And for the family, too. I mean, this has been... Uh, you know, 36 years is, is a, a lifetime uh, for, for many people, and many people in this town were not even alive. But it, talking to a young a young man, he's in his 20s, he said, I've watched every documentary, I know everything about this case. Even if they, if people who live here were not alive at the time, uh, they still are, They were. everyone knows about it, and they talk about it, and it, it it's haunted this town. So there is a, a sense of closure and, and relief for Gipal, who was a resident here, uh, someone that people knew. Uh, you were talking about looking more into the life of Calvin Hoover. What do you know about him? 
we don't know much. We know that he uh, he knew uh, the family. Uh, as we heard from uh, yesterday, we heard from the brother of Christine Joseph Kenny. He said that uh, I think he said that his his that Hoover's wife worked with Bob, uh, the father of Christine Joseph. So that was the connection, and they he he remembered that they you know the families would hang out together, the children would hang out together. Of course, uh, you know Calvin was twenty eight. Uh, he was he was um, much older than. Than little Christine. So yeah, we're trying to find out as much as we can. It's it's early. Um, we've got some irons on the fire, and we're 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 doing what we can. We're going to have a full report on Global News at five thirty. It's almost that there's closure here, but really, this is just reopening everything. What happens next? Well, police say they they're trying to um, really do a timeline. They want to know more. Toronto police, you know, they weren't originally in charge of this case. From what I understand, they took over this case when the province intervened uh, after the case was botched. Uh, I, I understand from talking to police in Toronto that they were tasked with this uh, with this case with this, this this unsolved murder, and so Toronto police are now trying to trace what Calvin Hoover did from 1984 until his death. We obviously know he, we've been told he committed suicide in 2015. So there's a period there of 31 years that we're, that police want to hear from people who may have known him. Um, we've heard that he, he was married twice. We understand that he had a couple of children. So these are all the kind of things we want to hear about. How did he continue on with his life? Uh, when he had this, this secret, this deep secret, that did, did anyone know about it? And clearly, if someone had, why didn't they come forward? So these are questions police are trying to get to the bottom of now. And you can imagine how the family must be feeling. The, the brother, a great example of that, as now, hindsight 2020, they look back and try to figure out how all of this unfolded. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, just wondering how this man was clearly on the, they had interviewed him. Uh, police did say yesterday when they got this uh, family DNA back from the lab in, in the U.S., they, they did go back and they, they, they had the name. They had his name amongst uh, their, their notes. So he was someone that they spoke to. He was someone we understand that spoke to. Um, he spoke to them, to Janet Jessup, the day that Christine disappeared. Or he, the wife had spoken to her because she was friends with the wife. So this, the question is, yeah, how did, how, I mean, everyone must be looking back saying, how did we not know? that it was Calvin yeah. Hoover. How did we not or guess that he might have been involved? But maybe he was, and maybe police did look at him, but they didn't have, you know, at the time they didn't have the DNA and, and the, the to do this. So it, it is amazing how science has been able to, to crack this case, and clearly police are now going to be looking at using this, this uh, tracking, this genealogical tracking more now. It's expensive from what I understand. It takes a long time. But wouldn't it be great if they could solve more cold cases um, with this kind of DNA technology? An incredible story. A killer was identified yesterday in the 1984 murder of Christine Jessup. Catherine McDonald's been with us, crime specialist for Global News. Uh, she's in Queensville right now. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Fascinating, Catherine. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in Cecilia Hagman, Assistant Professor of Forensic Science, Ontario Tech University, and is with us now. Cecilia, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. What can you tell us about how this happened now and, and how technology has got us to where we are? Well, the technology has always been here. What you have here is really a, a marriage between 
the traditional technology and the investigation and the um, genealogical services that have been doing work for uh, years, if not decades. And um, I think the catalyst for all of this is the um, the, the uh, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, Family Tree DNA, when millions of people put their DNA into these databases, you have a gold mine of data. And what investigators so, can do now is, is mine that gold. So, uh, again, as you were saying that, this is the first thing that came to my mind, because we see all the advertisements for all these services, and you can find out all about your family tree. But, Cecilia, that is where this all originated from? That's the data. That's yeah. the data that's used. And for those people who use the service and then want to find their their relatives, for example, what they can do is take their data and put it into a larger service such as JetMatch. It's a massive uh, database, which is an open source genealogical service. And the reason for it is to, is to find your relatives. And that's the same process would be to try to find somebody in a particular uh, criminal case. So would this person uh, who who now has been identified as the move as the murderer, Calvin Hoover, and again, I know you don't know anything specifically about this case and we can't really comment on that, but would this person have had to sign up for one of these services or could it just have been another family member? Oh, it could have been another family member. The so key how f- to this kind of work is that the genealogist looks at the amount of DNA that's shared between a particular person on the database and the target profile in the criminal case. And if they can then say, okay, we have this much DNA in common, let's find the common ancestor, let's make the uh, the tree, this family tree, and then you can give the police a pool of people who would share that amount of DNA. So it doesn't necessarily, so does the, does, how would, how would the genealogy companies have gotten his or access to his DNA information? They would have the information in this kind of case would be the tree. So in, in, I won't use any particular case. Let's just say in a, um, an ongoing case, police have, DNA left at a scene, they want to know from whom it comes. They don't have any other clue. All of the all of the casework comes back negative. They look to the National DNA Data Bank. They can't find anyone there. So the traditional technology doesn't give them a clue. So you process that criminal, uh, that crime scene sample in a new technology that now can be compared to the DNA that's found in the GEDmatch, which is all of the citizen DNA, for example, then there may be a hint to say this criminal sample has 3% of of the DNA similar to this particular person. There's the first clue. That's when the genetic genealogist comes in and says, okay, let's look at this person. Let's look at the criminal case, let's see whether or not we can find a common ancestor. They developed the family tree, and then from that family tree, then the police may get, okay, we have three cousins, or this 
cousin once removed that would be um, similar to this amount of DNA. This doesn't give the police an actual name. It may give them pool, a pool of people to now investigate by traditional means. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. Uh, you can see how this is going to continue to be used. Is it is it painstakingly slow? I understand it's expensive. Certainly, there is a tremendous amount of work that's done by the uh, genealogist. But this is work they've been doing, again, for years, and that's their expertise in looking at birth records, death records, obituaries, all sorts of traditional documentation to try to establish family trees. And on top of that now is the genetic information. So that, that is the real work is the, at the genealogist level. Uh, I understand this is being used in the United States quite a bit more than it is here. Will we start to see it being used more here now as a result of this high-profile case? I can't imagine that it wouldn't. If a particular case has enough DNA in order to produce this new kind of profile that's needed to do this kind of work, if there's enough DNA, if it is in a uh, relatively pure form, in other words, if it's not part of a large mixture of DNA, then if there are outstanding cases, it is a, an obvious way to, um, to um, look for clues. Again, this is absolutely incredible. Cecilia Hagman's been with us, Assistant Professor of Forensic Science, Ontario Tech University. Cecilia, thanks for helping us uh, helping us break this down and understand it more. Uh, again, uh, you can see how this is certainly going to be used in the future. Thanks for your time. Be well. That's my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dueling town halls. Trump and Biden going at it last night on different networks instead of debating each other. Uh, we know what happened there. That fell through. Uh, let's bring in. Oh, first, let's play a couple of clips. Uh, the first is uh, Donald Trump talking about testing and masks. Good with masks. I'm OK with masks. I tell people wear masks. But just the other day, they came out with a statement that 85 percent of the people that wear masks catch it well, so you know they this didn't is say that i know that study well, that's, 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 a, that's what i heard and that's what i saw did you test the day of the debate uh, i don't know i don't even remember i test all the time and here's biden on the issue of testing by the way before i came up here i took another test i've been taking every day the deep test you know the one they go on both and because i wanted to be able I, if i had not passed that test i didn't want to come here all right, here's Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, and I just want to quickly say I love the music you had at the top of your show, so that was really great, that. Oh, uh, Big Joe Turner, Flip, Flop, and Fly. Yes, yes, that was wonderful. It's a classic. So, uh, you know, Henry, obviously, we've been talking about this for years and just shaking our heads. Uh, obviously, the, the first debate, something to shake your head about. What about what transpired with the two different town halls on two different networks at exactly the same time? Well, it, it was an incredible tr contrast. And one thing I will say, some people might have missed it because, uh, uh, because you'd have to know what was happening both times. But the, the, uh, Trump was on for an hour, as I recall, and uh, Biden was on for two hours. So, so uh, that, w that was one of the differences. But, uh, I mean, but the stark difference, of course, was, and we've seen this in the debate, uh, and we've seen it with reporters lately, that Trump is just becoming very, very angry. This is an angry man, and it's a, I think it's just really turning off a lot of people. And, of course, he 
says things that are totally untrue. I mean, this whole idea, 85% of the people who wear masks get sick. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, I mean we, that's nonsense. It's the other way around, if, if, if anything. And about, but I don't think 85% of the people who don't wear masks get sick. But, if it, but it should be the other way around, if anything. But, you know, and, and here you have, you contrast with Biden, who is very careful what he says, is very nuanced. And, and he talks about things that he's going to do. Um, you know, things that he, if he, he comes into office, what are the programs, what are the policies he's going to try to push, you know, and he, you know, sometimes he backs off a little bit and he shows that he gives ground. And uh, Trump is exactly the opposite. He talks all about himself and why he's always right and why he's always wonderful and why he's so strong. And also, uh, you know, uh, he doubles down when he's challenged. He doesn't ever want to admit that he's made a mistake or maybe he should revise a little what he has to say. He just doubles down. And so the contrast that people see is, is very dramatic and but from what we can tell from all the polls that are going on in the U.S., as people make up their minds or become solidified in their positions, they essentially do not like how Trump behaves. Does what this ended up being with two separate uh, town halls, did this favor one candidate over the other, do you think? Or do you think at the end of the day people know what they're doing and they'll just move on? I, I would think that there were probably anybody. Uh, I think people who were really undecided or hadn't made up their mind yet, and I think there's very few of those people left. Uh, I, very, I think very few people would have felt so uncomfortable listening to Trump, by and large. And I think uh, whether people would be willing to put in two hours with Biden is another, you know, or any politician. But essentially, yeah. I think they would have found him more reasonable. But what we're doing, we're seeing on the U.S. networks, and also monitoring, you know, how how the different, and uh, you know, news media in the U.S. Pl- have been dealing with this, and they've been showing clips from both sides, trying to give, uh, you know, fair time between both. And then bringing on various types of experts, uh, some sometimes uh, different from different political parties, sometimes professional reporters, and letting you see what the difference is. And when you see that, you you really you really see the big uh, you know you really see these are two very different people. Biden's very careful with his words. He's very nuanced. You know, he doesn't make you know outlandish statements, and and he seems to be thoughtful. And uh, I just think this. Uh, I just I just think. This is more of what the American people want, and I think the polls have been showing that. We remember what the first debate was like. Uh, obviously, the second one, uh, the president tested positive. Therefore, the debate commission said this is, has to be online. It's got to be mm-hmm. a virtual debate. Trump said no and pulled out. That's how we got to the town halls. Mm-hmm. There's been no chatter about canceling the third debate. What do you think this is going to look like? Well, I don't know what's finally going to happen there. I, I don't know whether... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, Trump finds a reason not, not to do that one. Uh, I mean, he does not look well in the debate. Biden, Biden, I think Biden won the first debate, and I think he's a natural debater, and he plays to the audience. And Trump, unfortunately, plays to himself. You know, it's all about him. And, you know, if any part of the audience pays attention, it's his own uh, his 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 uh, base, but his base is you know over the years has slowly been chipped away, and so it's a, his base is a lot less than Biden's base right now, and he needed to bring in you know to basically go back and get those independents who supported him four years ago, to get the seniors who supported him four years ago, uh, you know, and, and including the more affluent women, and a lot of those people have just left him. They just found him just to be, you know, they just don't enjoy 
listening to him, and they don't they don't believe him anymore, and they just believe basically that he's you know completely mishandled many issues, but especially uh, the virus and uh, the COVID virus. And every once in a while, you'll hear. I think it was in the first debate that uh, the, one of the questions that was asked. This is what Canada was only, the only time mentioned, saying, "Why can't we be?" You know, he's talking to Americans and talking to the candidates. Why can't we be like Canada that uh, had only one third of the um, average rate of uh, infections that the United States has? So that's and that's the I think depression of the U.S. Uh, elector right now is we have done very poorly and they simply don't believe Trump when he says you know he he's done a great job. It's funny you should bring that up because I remember watching some of the town halls over the last couple of weeks and they'll actually talk to people from all over America and they'll say what they want and it's like wow that sounds just like Canada yes. <laughs> what they're asking for. Uh, many people are critiquing uh, Biden his weakness he's old he's not that sharp he can ramble on you were joking about it. do people mm-hmm. want to sit and watch him for two hours so how does that. Uh, work against him as opposed to Trump, who, when asked about testing dates, couldn't remember or didn't, you know, I, I don't know if I was tested the day of the yeah. uh, of the debate or not. Whereas, you know, I don't know if someone's shoving a thing up my nose, I think I'm going to remember that pretty quickly, even yeah. if it's happening on a daily basis. Right. Uh, how do the, the two of those, you know, one one that, that doesn't really tell the truth versus one that some say can't remember? Well, the you know, certainly when uh, when Trump says, I can't remember if I had to test the day of the debate, I'm sure most of the people listening to that say, oh, I can't believe that. You know, yeah. so, again, it's another time when they say, this is a guy that never tells the truth. We, we, we don't believe that. Of course he would remember whether he had a test that day. Uh, any Anybody who's aware and alive should, would remember that uh, in that situation. In the case of Biden, okay, he, he doesn't move maybe as fast as Trump. Uh, sometimes he does, though. I've seen him whip up the stairs into a plane a few times. Uh, I'm sure he's doing that for show, but he shows he can do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, sometimes, and he does tend to ramble around and uh, sometimes go a bit off track. And I think some of his answers are too long. Uh, but I know a lot of people, I think it's interesting. I think probably people over 65 who are very important because they vote and because they're also very much afraid of the virus, uh, they, they, they look at Biden and they say, this guy is going to do the best to protect me, uh, an older person. And we've seen in the polls the older, older people who had voted over 65 had voted for Trump four years ago. They have switched. So, so many of them have switched right over to, over to Biden and over to the Democrats. So those people like him. And and also the interesting thing is younger people like him, too. He's like, so you're your friendly grandfather, right? Mm. You, it's a nice grandfather type of figure. So it's interesting type of uh, connection, uh, coalition here of his great strength is with people who are young and with people who are in their senior years. And I've never seen anything like that before. But I think, you know, it's it it, it you know he's he's been able to catch those two groups, even though they're very diverse. And uh, uh, okay. here's a poli side question for you. We we've only got about a minute left here. Um, everybody's talking about the polling and how uh, poor Trump is doing in the polling now. But we remember the the other the last election, right. uh, very much so, where uh, you know the same predictions were made that Hillary was going to walk away with it, and the opposite happened. Why are the polls different now? Should they be different? Well, the polls, the, all the pollsters learned by what you said, and they're factoring in and telling you, well, if we made the same error this time that we did the last time, and they imply they they uh, they they use that to adjust the numbers they're getting in, in the polls now, 
they tell you whether the, the, the Biden lead will still hold. So they, they not usually most of them have been knocking off two, maybe three percent of the numbers they get for Biden. But Biden is still winning because a lot of places he's approaching double figures and a uh, difference. And so you can take, you know, two or three points off of 10 points, but that still leaves Biden leading in a state by seven percent. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Henry, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, and always enjoy talking to you, Scott. Thanks so much, Henry. We'll chat again. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Uh, Alyssa PR, AlyssaFreeman.com. Dueling town halls last night. Let's get a PR perspective. Did one of these formats favor the other, In the depending on which candidate? Well, it's interesting because they were both very, very different formats, both in the way they looked, the way they felt, and the way they sounded. If you, I was toggling between the two. Uh, one was very even and calm, and the other one was combative. And I think that there, if we sort of dial back a bit, there was a lot of uh, dissension from not only within NBC's ranks, but from around the dial and just uh, mm. media and political watchers that this was really a lousy move by NBC to put Trump on in a competing time frame. And even, you know, someone like a CNBC anchor, such as Rachel Maddow, who has a big audience and has big clout within the, in the uh, corporation itself, was very, very upset. So really, um, they were under the pressure to not give Trump a free ride on this. And I have to say yeah. that I think that Savannah Guthrie did do a good job in holding his feet to the fire. The only thing that was the issue with her is that, you know, she could stay on one topic and keep drilling down on it because this was yeah. TV and they had to keep it interesting and she had to keep moving along, which is the only thing I could probably, well, I think I could fault her on a few things, but I mean, which is the only thing that people uh, faulted her with. But if you look at the way Joe Biden did his performance, and you're right, it was, you know, not exciting. It was very on the level. But if you think about it, all he has to do is protect his lead. So when you look at it in that perspective, perspective, Joe Biden had an excellent night. His performance may not have been a 9 out of 10, but in terms of strategy, the and as you just said, the time he took to finesse answering tough questions, and also running out the clock when it came out to answering maybe uh, an even tougher question. He really just maintained a great cadence. His voice never rose. His face never reddened. And it's a direct contrast to what was going on on the other channel, where by the end of it, and I can only uh, compare this to when Nixon was debating uh, Kennedy way back mm. in the 60s, was that Kennedy remained calm and cool, and Nixon was a sweaty mess. Yeah. And that sweaty mess, basically, many people say, cost him the election. So the difference in style was very evident, and it was supported by the atmosphere that they gave each candidate. There was a bit of flop sweat around the president last night. I was ready for the orange to start running off. I really was. But yeah. I think that they probably... <laughs> I counted for that. It's a good base coat there. 
<laughs> exactly. So this we 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 found or we saw we saw last night because of uh, obviously the second debate was canceled uh, by the president because he didn't want to do it virtually. That was the rule by the commission uh, who runs the debates after he tested positive. What will there be a third debate? They talked last night. Yep, no problem. See you a couple of, or a few days. We're going to do this again uh, with with a debate. What will that be like? Do you think we'll ever ever see this debate? You know, I wondered the same thing. I turned to my husband and I said, did you hear what I heard? They're really having a third debate? And if so, what are the new rules be put into place? Are they going to cut the the mic so that the candidates can't talk over one another? That would have to be rule number one. Rule number two, when Savannah Guthrie asked Trump, so when's the last time you were tested? The fact that he can't answer that, Scott. Yeah, I I think most people would remember having a Q-tip shoved halfway up their nose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, I don't know, I get tested all the time. I mean, and there are people who are voting for this man who is the master at deflecting an answer or not giving an answer. And that's what I find especially astounding. So, you know, if you don't know what the last time you were tested in, so I would like to see, A, testing protocol, B, announcing what the, um, the results of that test is, I would like to see, uh, they would have to agree, like they did in the VP debate, that there would be a plexiglass. And D, I'd like to know that the mics are going to be cut off because Americans are not going to be goaded into watching another slugfest where one candidate talks over another. And if the debate commission doesn't put those type of uh, new uh, parameters in place, I doubt that a uh, that a debate is actually going to happen. And right now, if anybody really needs to fire up his base because he is trailing so badly right now in the polls, it's Trump. And he needs he needs to have to show his combative nature. So, you know, yesterday, last night, his combatant was Savannah Guthrie. So we see that, you know, it's not just Joe Biden that uh, Trump is um you know, battling against is also the mainstream media, which is also with a with an interesting contradiction. It is going to be fascinating if there is a third debate and or, well, um, I guess the te- technically the third, the second that never happened. I don't know whatever way you want to package it. But again, if they put forth a list of guidelines like you have just said, there's no way Donald Trump is going to accept that. On the other hand, as you mentioned, he can't afford not to be there uh, beating up Joe Biden on TV. It's it's going to be fascinating. Alyssa Freeman with us, a PR expert, Alyssa PR, AlyssaFreeman.com. As always, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Last month, we spoke with Susie Golding, who uh, is of COVID Long Haulers, a group that she started. And uh, there's been lots of chatter about people who have uh, come down with COVID-19 and then have gone on to uh, obviously survive the disease, but still keep uh, lingering symptoms. And, you know, as I'm talking about this, I'm looking at numbers. Uh, Quebec today, uh, 1,055 new cases. Ontario at 712. Uh, the total amount of deaths, uh, this is what is staggering. Uh, the total amount, amount of deaths in uh, Quebec is 6,018. In Ontario, it's half that at 3,000, even though there's quite a bit more population in Ontario than Quebec. And that makes up 
uh, the overall national uh, death rate is 9,700. So out of the out of the 9,700 across Canada, 6,000 of those are just from the province of Quebec, which is just astounding when you think about it. And uh, the country has to do a lot of work, but my goodness, so does that province. Uh, as I mentioned, let's bring in Susie Golding, founder of COVID Long Haulers, people who have uh, got the disease and lived to tell. But boy, it's uh, quite a journey coming out of it. And Susie is with us now. Susie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me again. So I think we talked last month. Uh, give us your story really quickly again and how you're feeling today. Right. So I got COVID on March the 21st. It's been seven months. Started off with just a mild cold, sore throat. Then it went into my chest, um, a GI tract, went through my heart and ended up in my brain. Uh, the, those uh, those symptoms came on later at about week 10. And I've been suffering since week 10 with very low cognitive function. Um, it's really hard for me to piece together ideas, um, grasping words, and trying to remember things. Were you hospitalized at all? No, I wasn't hospitalized. I was what you would call a mild case. So how long did, right, how long did you, how long did you, uh, did you experience those initial uh, feelings of the virus? You you talked about the sore throat and so on. How long did that go? The sore throat lasted for about five days or so and then uh, symptoms kept coming on different symptoms would come on and and would stay and then I'd get uh, other symptoms so the the sore throat lasted for about a week and then other symptoms uh, the GI tract issues I'm still dealing with today Um, I did get rid of the sinus sort of issue that was happening Um, but things sort of it's like an ebb and flow it's not like a uh, an onward and upward recovery is just, uh, you know, you feel good some days and then you feel really bad. And so it just really doesn't make much sense. Did you ever feel like you were coming out of this? You're fine. And then go back into it. Uh, not really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I've always been pretty just going through different symptoms. So although some symptoms have resolved, uh, the neurological issues that I'm dealing with now are quite debilitating. And talk about those. Right. So I, I'm dizzy all the time. It's hard for me to drive, so it makes things difficult going up and down stairs. Um, I have a really bad memory now. I used to be bright and, and, and able to multitask. And now if I change my train of thought and then try to go back to what I had just said moments ago, it's just not there. Um, I, I, it's really hard to function like this. And it's actually really hard to give a good interview because I I had to rest all morning to get enough brain power to come on and, and try to sound like I'm a bit cohesive in what I'm saying. And if you don't mind me asking, Susie, uh, how old are you and what was your health like prior to this? Okay, well, I'm 52 and my health was great. Um, I did have a car crash the previous year, which left me with a a, a brain injury, but I was recovering from from that. Um, and since a lot of people find that COVID sort of gets into your body and finds all of your weaknesses and then multiplies that, uh, magnifies that a hundred times. Hmm. And what have doctors said to you about this? Doctors really don't know much. This is the uh, terrible thing about it is that there's really... Um, there's not re- uh, research being done on long haulers. So we're sort of left to our own demise and really doctors don't know what to do with us. Uh, the tests that we 
take, like I had an MRI, uh, really doesn't show any kind of damage. So from what I hear, the damage is done at a, a cellular level. So the, the, the imaging di- uh, diagnostics that we have just aren't, aren't, aren't capable enough to see the damage that's being done. So doctors are just floored. They're missed, and they don't know what to do with us. Uh, do you, you, any idea how you got this? Yeah, I went to the hospital on the 19th to have a screening. This was the week of the, the lockdown where people were, were hoarding toilet paper. And I actually, I was the only person at the hospital that had a mask on. Um, I was there for a, uh, a, month, uh, a yearly screening. Sorry, I don't remember if I just said that or not. Um, and I was very careful. And I just, there's no way in my mind that I thought I could have ever contracted COVID. Um, so it was just bizarre to me that, that I seemed to be the only person around, you know, from my family, from my friends that had COVID. And it was just a really bizarre thing. So you've started this organization, COVID Long Haulers, and, and trying to get information and, and put everybody in touch with each other. What's that been like? What's the Facebook page been like for you? Right. Well, it's called COVID Long Hauler Support Group Canada. And it's been a saving grace for, for thousands of us. The, the group is at about 4,500 people now, and it grows daily. Um, lately, it's been really scary seeing all the young people that are joining the group. In the earlier days of the pandemic, the first wave, it was sort of an older group, um, you know, mostly in our 40s and 50s and, and up. Uh, most of the people that were being affected were in that age category. But now I'm finding that all a lot of the younger people are joining in their 20s. And it's really sad to me to see these people joining this group, because these symptoms don't go away. And they're debilitating. We don't know if they're they're going to be symptoms that we're going to have to live with for for our life. Um, any common denominator in what you're hearing from all of these people? What, what are they saying the most? Uh, there's it's that's that's a difficult question because COVID is a multi-system virus, so it can affect your heart, your lungs, your brain, your kidneys, your GI tract. So when you get the virus, it's like reaching into a grab bag and pulling out a handful of symptoms, and this is what you're going to get for your COVID experience. Mm. So uh, nobody is the same. Everybody, and this is the difficulty in diagnosing and, and researching, is that everybody has different symptoms. Um, I know uh, we we do all kinds of research and polls in our group, and one of it was, what was your first symptom? And the... the the symptoms were just all over the map. Like one one woman had her first, first symptom was a sore hip. Other people complain of headaches. Other people have sinus. Some people um, develop flu, fever. So everybody is different. It's interesting you said it just attacks the weakest thing perhaps in one's body and then just whatever problem you had, it makes it worse. Yeah. Uh, man, this sounds like a nasty virus. Um, it really invite- is a monster. Man, uh, advice for those who are questioning all of this, uh, wondering what to do, feeling anxiety, the whole thing. What, you know, you're a, you're a survivor of this. What do you say to people about it? Well, I, you know, don't take those chances on being social. It's, it's not the time in life at the moment to be to be social and take those chances to have social gatherings. Uh, stay safe. Just go out when you need to um, grocery shop maybe once every, you know, cr- cut that in half. You know, buy, buy, buy your things in advance and or online or whatever you have to do. But just try not to, you know, have too much. The only way to avoid to not have the virus is through avoidance. 
um, people just really need to try and take that extra measure to, to stay safe. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and social distancing. And all three of those in combination will help us stop the spread of this disease. Uh, give us the address of the Facebook page again. How do we find this, Susie? Thanks. It's really a great platform for people to get information. There's all kinds of articles that we post, and it's a, a really uh, wonderful place for people to get the recognition that they need. A lot of people have been told by their doctors, like, you don't have COVID, or there's no way, this is all in your head, you're suffering from anxiety. So it's a really tumultuous time and, and very uh, it's really hard for people. You know, they think that they're going crazy until they get into the group and they realize, wow, you know, this is a godsend. So um, the group is there for, for everyone for support and for people to, you know, come to us if they, they're interested in, in learning about it. And so anyway, so the group is called COVID Long Hauler Support Group Canada, and we're a Facebook group. All right, COVID Long Haulers Support Group uh, Canada. Susie Golding has been with us, the founder of that, and uh, after con- uh, after contracting the disease back in March, is still suffering from it. Susie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. We'll stay in contact to try to monitor your progress, and good luck to you. Thanks, Scott, and stay safe, everyone. Uh, interesting question. Scott, please ask your guests, do flies, mosquitoes carry the COVID virus? Yes or no? I will certainly put that question out there. I have not heard anything at this point to suggest that that is the case. Uh, another one from Kevin. Uh, your guest points out she wore a mask and went to the hospital and she got corona. Proof masks don't work. I'm not buying that because uh, in hospitals they wear masks in the operating room as they have had for a bazillion years for the exact same reason, and that's stopping the spread of spewed germs from uh, flying around the room. So for the exact same reason doctors are wearing masks in the operating room is the exact same reason why they want you to wear one in regard to COVID-19 and stopping the spread of the disease. Uh, Keep the questions coming. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Obviously, we heard that York Region, with the Premier's news conference, uh, York Region uh, is slipping back into a modified version of Stage 3, which basically the big difference is uh, no indoor dining, gyms, of that, uh, things of that nature, which require lots of people indoors. Uh, that uh, also coming to a stop as of uh, Monday at midnight for York Region. How will Hamilton fare? Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks very much. Hope you are too. So, Paul, uh, obviously we heard of stage, uh, uh, sorry, we heard of York Region going, uh, slipping back into stage two. The Premier also mel- uh, mentioned Halton in his uh, news conference today. Uh, how close is Hamilton to perhaps being uh, called back into a modified version of stage two? Well, the reality is we're, we're monitoring the cases closely. Uh, public health is, uh, is looking at the underlying reasons why the cases have, have certainly gone up and uh, you know, the proximity we have to the GTA in general and certainly to Halton and, and, and some of that increase in cases means that we're concerned. But the reality is our numbers are not there yet. Uh, and, and if we continue to do the right things in this community and continue to have uh, the right approach to, to the way we deliver services and the way we interact in the community, I think we can stay out of that. And what you're seeing is, you know, heading back to March, April, early May type lockdowns are, are, are probably unlikely. 
uh, unless something really terrible happens. But uh, these these specific areas of, of concern uh, are where the province is going these days, and it's certainly where our local medical officer of health um, and our public health unit are looking as well. So, you know, we, we remain, you know, cautiously optimistic that uh, we can do the right things, keep our curve uh, flattened, and, and uh, we've seen an uptick for sure. Uh, we're at rates we haven't seen since the early stages. And in fact, on an average, we're at levels that we've never seen through COVID. So it's a concern for us. But, um, you know, I, I, I just hope people can do the right thing and we can avoid some of those uh, rollbacks and, and uh, changes and restrictions that we've seen uh, coming through the GTA today. Paul, how concerned are you with people coming from under other regions into Hamilton, whether it's to see the waterfalls or enjoy the great restaurants? I mean, let's be honest, the last few years, last 10 years, Hamilton's the place to be. Are you concerned about people coming around the corner and uh, out of their region into ours? And there is a certain level of concern, and certain activities drive that concern. Concern of, of people coming and visiting uh, uh, family, uh, maybe family members who are um, you know, more at risk of visiting individuals in long-term care facilities, those types of things. I mean, there's a concern about that. And, and we heard that last week, um, certainly around Thanksgiving, when the province was was encouraging people not to leave, particularly areas of high case numbers and go to areas of low case numbers. But look, we've been dealing with this throughout the pandemic. Uh, in the early stages, we were telling people water falls closed, whatever. The challenge wasn't so much Hamiltonians. There's a lot of people traveling from outside the area. It's going to happen. You can't lock down communities. Uh, we have people also leaving Hamilton and going places. Uh, but my concern is that uh, I hope individuals, wherever they live and wherever they're traveling, are thinking about what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. And, and these uh, family gatherings, visiting people uh, who are at higher risk, all these things, we have to take a very strong look as individuals as to why we're doing that. Uh, because right now we seem to be at, a, at this, we are in this second wave. And we could be in a situation where we're spreading this virus needlessly to people who are, um, you know, it could have some very uh, poor outcomes as a result. Obviously, Paul, we know where we were uh, at the beginning of all of this and then the decline at the bottom of stage uh, one and, the, you know, towards the end of the summer. And then obviously the reoccurrence and, and entering into stage two and such. Are you are you uh, are you convinced we can get back to where we were? Because they say these numbers, and as you mentioned, uh, some of the numbers are a bit higher than they were. Although now we are certainly better prepared. But how concerned are you about this second wave? Uh, well, concerned that this second wave is is these sort of gentle waves that will come. I mean, coronavirus is here. We still do not have an immunity strategy. We don't have a vaccine for this virus. So. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always concerned that the, the, the cases going up and down will likely be with us until that, that, that happens. The trick is for us to make sure that we can keep that number at a reasonable amount and not overwhelm our systems. And I really believe if people continue to come back to first principles about what we've been doing throughout this, we have many, many more people interacting in the community. And if we follow the public health guidelines, uh, we are not going to be risk-free. We are not going to see a situation where we never have another case. But I think we can keep the cases at a manageable level. And, and uh, you know, I, I heard uh, your comment of one of your, your callers uh, talking about, you know, masks didn't protect them from everything. And the answer is mask is one layer of protection. So is our distancing. So is hand washing. So is not touching your face. So is not going out when you're sick. It is that combination of factors 
that will allow us to keep these numbers at a reasonable level. I believe that is the case. And, and talking to Dr. Richardson, she also believes that uh, we can uh, we can keep these at a reasonable number if we do if we do the right thing. There you have it. Paul Johnson with us, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, talking about COVID-19 as we head into another weekend and York Region goes backwards into a modified stage two. Paul, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Good luck to you and everybody at the city for uh, for keeping us all safe and uh, have yourself as best a weekend you can while monitoring all this and stay well. That's right. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a Have a safe weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Reverend Jim Carrier from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. He is with us now. Jimmy, how are you? I understand you requested the Super Tramp. I did. Yeah. One of my favorite bands, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, were you were going to find a musical instrument to play? Did you, oh, did you... I was, and then I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know whether that's good or bad, Jimmy. Uh, I don't know whether the I don't know whether the audience is disappointed or relieved. Oh, oh, they're probably feeling a little blessed. <laughs> there you go. All right, so uh, let's talk about where we are. Uh, my goodness, we're seeing uh, York Region today uh, slip back into a modified heard, yeah. stage two after uh, the weekend, this coming weekend. And they say that in Halton, the numbers are going back up uh, as well. I uh, talked to the people in Hamilton. Uh, we're holding it pretty steady at this point, but you can see this thing just coming right around the horseshoe again. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts uh, as we... As we continue on onto, this is 31 weeks, Jim. We're ending up yeah. the 31st week of all this. Yeah, well, um, second verse, same as the first, right? I mean, uh, all the provisions are, are in place. Uh, it's eased up in a lot of areas. There are some areas, of course, York being the latest, that are um, slipping back into into uh, an adaptation of, of stage two. But, uh, but I think that for the most part, we're still steady on the course. Uh, we still need to be careful. We still need to watch out for one another and do these, these really awkward things that, that prior to 2020, we never really, we never really thought we'd end up doing, like wearing masks out in public. And, and, you know, before 2020, the only people we social distance from was people we don't like. So, uh, there's all kinds of these new things, the hand washing routines, all sorts of new things. And so the message really is just to stay flexible, stay, stay adaptable, go with the flow of, of the restrictions, and, and we'll get through this. And I know that they're difficult, and it's tired, and we're, there are some people that are tired. It's called a, a crisis fatigue, uh, the constant state of, of caution and worry. And so that I know that we're tired, but we really need to, uh, to, to steady the course, to stay, stay flexible. We need to share the reality of what's going on as well. Earlier today, I heard your interview with uh, Susie Golden uh, from COVID Long Haulers. And, you know, when you listen to stories like that, hmm. then you, the abstract becomes real. There's a story behind it. There's a person behind what's going on. And when we listen and hear people like Susan, for me anyway, it, uh, it just it still stirs up in me this, this urge to do even better, uh, to help protect one another, especially when you hear from people who have suffered from the disease, those who have died from the disease, and those who are, are suffering long-term effects from the disease as well. So, you know, create new routines. Routines, do the whole self-care thing, uh, maybe read a book, go for a walk, say a prayer, uh, just kind of create a new routine and, and even a new support system, if you will, and get a hold of some family and friends that you can contact. Because I, uh, I think, Scott, I think you know that we're in this for the long haul, and I think that yeah. it's important that we just kind of be flexible as we go through this and, and trust and hope 
and know that eventually a vaccine will come along and and this will be this will be yesterday's news someday uh we remember uh in the summer coming down off the first wave and things looked good the numbers were down people got a little uh lax perhaps with the protocol and such and then the second wave hit and the message started again and everybody hammering home here's what you have to do uh we certainly saw a spike in the younger demographics uh during this period and many thought the message wasn't being relayed is that message getting across do you think now are people understanding the message I think so, and I think I think summer sort of provided us a, a, an excitement, and uh, and as you know, this all started in March, and as spring approached and summer came, I mean, we're Canadians, and we're we're stuck indoors all winter, and we love mm-hmm. the summer, we love the heat, we love the beach, and I think that actually provided a bit of relief for us when we were sort of given that release to to do more things, and especially do things outdoors and stuff. But now we're kind of heading into this phase, and we're heading into winter where maybe we need to we need to rethink um, um, what we've done over over the past summer, um, uh, what we've done through the summer, and uh, and just kind of think about about toning it back again, and just sort of sort of getting back into this new routine again and staying safe. I mean, there are there are threats that a third wave may come as well. So by then, I hope that we've had enough practice, you know, and that and that that we're well settled into this new routine to get us through. Uh, obviously, uh, doing what you do, you are out and about. You are talking to the community. You are talking to people. What is the feeling in your congregation? How are people feeling? Uh, there's fatigue there. There's um, there's concern for one another. My congregation's uh, mostly elderly. So there's concern for one another. There's there's fatigue there, but we are meeting together every second Sunday following protocols. It's not the same, but it is it is something. And uh, and people are seeing each other at least at least mask to mask or face to face. But they are seeing each other. But I think that the general sense is a fatigue. Uh, there's a, some question about how long this is going to go on, and quite frankly, we don't know. We hear varying stories about about when the vaccine will will be ready and will be available. Uh, but I think that the general tone is that we're doing, we're tired, but we're doing what we should be doing. And uh, and I think that from from a, uh, the perspective of our faith, that uh, that this is this is the way this is the way that we love our neighbor is is to take care of one another and uh, to take the necessary precautions. So we're fatigued, but but steady. The Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us, uh, Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Make sure you check out his Facebook page. Jim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Say hi to the fam. Yeah, say hi to your family, too. I just heard them there screaming and yelling. So, <laughs> Yes, well, not much has changed, Jim. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, be well. Have a great weekend. Right, thank you. You, too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.